Section 25 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piano Roll. Chapter 7, The Conflict of Creeds and Parties in Germany, by A.F. Pollard, Part 3. In the Netherlands, Charles V was enabled by the strength of his position as territorial prince and by means of the Inquisition to exercise an authority in religious matters which was denied him in Germany. But his repression had the effect of stimulating the growth of extremer doctrines. Schismatic movements had long been endemic in the Netherlands, and nowhere else did Melchior Hoffman find so many disciples. Chief among them were Jan Mathis, a baker of Harlem, and Jan Buckelson or Bockelson, popularly known as Jan of Leyden. Mathis declared himself to be the Enoch of the new dispensation, and chose twelve apostles to proselytize the six neighboring provinces. Buckelson was one of them. Though not yet thirty years of age, he had seen much of the world. As a journeyman tailor, he had traveled over Europe from Lubeck to Lisbon. Abandoning his trade, he opened an inn at Leyden, became a leading member of the local Raderreichers, and wrote verses and dramas in which he himself played a part. Finally, he fell under the influence of the scriptural teaching of Hoffman and Mathis, as whose forerunner he journeyed to Munster in January 1584 and joined forces with Rotman and the Munster Anabaptists. The arrival of Buckelson and his colleagues precipitated the conflict for which the Catholics and Lutherans had armed as early as the previous autumn. After a few days of ominous silence, the insurrection broke out on February 9. It was premature. The conservatives were still the stronger party, but in a moment of hesitation they consented to mutual toleration. The concession was fatal. In a fortnight, the fanatical zeal of the revolutionists made thousands of fresh converts, especially among the women, and the legal security they had won in Munster attracted crowds of their fellow sectaries from Holland and the neighboring German towns. Mathis himself appeared on the scene. At the municipal election of the 21st, the Anabaptists secured a majority on the council, and Nipperdalink, the executioner of the sect, became burgomaster. Six days later there was a great prayer meeting of armed Anabaptists in the town hall. Mathis roused himself from an apparent trance to demand in the name of God the expulsion of all who refused conversion. Old and young, mothers with infants in arms, and barefooted children were driven out into the snow to perish, while the reign of the saints began. Like the earliest Christians, they sought to have all things in common, and as a commencement they confiscated the goods of the exiles. To ensure primitive simplicity of worship, they next destroyed all images, pictures, manuscripts, and musical instruments on which they could lay their hands. Tailors and shoemakers were enjoined to introduce no new fashions in wearing apparel. Gold and silver and jewels were surrendered to the common use, and there was an idea of pushing the communistic principle to its logical extreme by repudiating individual property in wives. 
The last was apparently offensive to public opinion even in purified Munster, and the nearest approach to it affected in practice was polygamy, which was not introduced without some sanguinary opposition and did not probably extend far beyond the circle of Bukelson and the leaders of the movement. These eccentricities were regarded by their authors as a necessary preparation for the second coming of Christ. That the end of the world was at hand was a common idea of the day. No one was more thoroughly possessed by it than Luther, but while he set little store on the book of Revelation, the Anabaptists of Munster found in it their chief inspiration. They conceived that they were making straight the path of the Lord by abolishing all human ordinances, such as property, marriage, and social distinctions. The notion was not entirely new. At one end of the religious scale, the Taborites had held somewhat similar views, and at the other, monastic life was also based on renunciation of private property, of marriage, and of the privilege of rank. The idea of preparing for the Second Advent gave the movement its strength and stimulated the revolutionists of Munster to resist for a year and a half the miseries of a siege and all the forces which Germany could bring against them. The rule of Mathis the prophet was brought to a sudden end by his death in a sortie at Easter, and his mantle fell upon Jan of Leyden, probably a worse but certainly an abler man. His introduction of polygamy provoked resistance from the respectable section led by Mollenbeck, but they were mercilessly butchered after surrender. He who fires the first shot cried Jan, in words which might have been borrowed from Luther's attack on the peasants, does God a service. After his victory he dispensed with the twelve elders who had nominally ruled the new Israel, and by the mouth of his prophet Dusenshire, announced it as the will of God that he should be king of all the world and establish the fifth monarchy of the apocalypse. He assumed the pomp and circumstance of royalty, easily crushed an attempt of Nipperdalink to supplant him, defeated the besiegers with much slaughter on August 30, 1534, when they tried to take the city by storm, and in October sent out twenty-eight apostles to preach the new kingdom to the neighboring cities. They were armed with Ducentur's prophecy of ruin for such as did them harm, but almost all were seized and executed, and a young woman, who attempted to play the part of Judith to the holoferns of the Bishop of Munster, met with a similar fate. These misfortunes probably dimmed the faith of the besieged in Munster. Although there were thousands of Anabaptists scattered throughout the north of Germany and the Netherlands, their sporadic risings were all suppressed, and no town but Warendorf accepted Munster's proposals of peace. The Württemberg War, which had distracted the princes of Germany, was over, and the Lübeck War prevented Hanseatic Democrats from assisting the people of Munster as effectually as it kept North German princes from joining the siege. But it was April 1535, before the mutual jealousies of the various princes, the dissensions between Catholics and Protestants, the inefficiency of the national military organization, and the common fear lest Charles V should seize the occasion to extend his Burgundian patrimony 
at the expense of Germany by appropriating Munster to himself, permitted a joint expedition in aid of the Bishop of Munster, who had hitherto carried on the siege with the help of some Hessian troops. After that, the result could not long remain doubtful, but the city offered a stubborn resistance, and it was only by means of treachery that it was taken by assault on the night of June 24. The usual slaughter followed. Jan of Leyden and Nipperdalink were tortured to death in the marketplace with red-hot pincers. Munster was deprived of its privileges as an imperial city. The bishop's authority and Catholicism were re-established, and a fortress was built to support them. The Anabaptists were dispersed into many lands, and their views exercised a potent influence in England and America in the following century. But the visionary and revolutionary spirit which gave Anabaptism its importance during the German Reformation passed out of it to assume other forms, and Anabaptism slowly became a respectable creed. Two of the three revolutions which disturbed Germany in 1534-5, the Württemberg War and the Munster Insurrection, were thus ended. There remained a third, the attempt of commercial democracy to establish an empire over the shores of the Baltic. The cities of the Hanseatic League had long enjoyed the most complete autonomy, and whatever authority neighboring princes and prelates could claim within the walls of any of them was a mere shadow. Hence the Lutheran Reformation, appealing as it did most powerfully to the burgher class, won an easy and early victory in most of these trading communities. But this victory was the beginning rather than the end of strife, for the social ferment which followed on the religious revolt inevitably produced a division between the richer and poorer classes. It bore little relation to differences on religious questions, though here as elsewhere in the 16th century, every movement tended to assume a theological garb, and the rich naturally favored conservative forms of religion, while the poor adopted novel doctrines. Thus, risings at Hanover in 1533, at Bremen in 1580, 82, and at Brunswick in 1528, were directed partly against the old church and partly against the aristocratic town councils. The chief of these municipal revolutions occurred at Lübeck and Stralsund, but although the triumph of the democracy was accompanied by a good deal of iconoclasm, and Woolenweaver, the leader of the Lübeck populace, was accused of Anabaptism, the struggle was really social and political, or, according to Sastro, the burgomaster of Greifswald, between the respectable and the disreputable classes. In both cities, the oligarchic character of the town council was abolished, and power was transferred to demagogues depending on the support of the artisans. But the importance of these changes consists not so much in their constitutional aspect, though this was of considerable significance, as in the effect they produced upon the external policy of the Hanseatic League. That famous organization had lost much of the power it wielded in the 14th and 15th centuries. Its position was based on a union between the so-called Wendic cities of the Baltic and the towns of Westphalia and the Netherlands. 
and upon the control which they exercised over the united Scandinavian kingdoms, and thus over the whole trade of the Baltic and the North Sea. The most potent voice in the Confederation had hitherto been that of Lübeck, but the development of Bruges and Antwerp, under the fostering care of their Burgundian rulers, provoked a bitter rivalry between the Flemings and the League. Lübeck insisted upon the exclusion of Dutch trade from the Baltic, and the Dutch naturally resented this limitation of their commerce. At the same time, this loosening of the bond between the eastern and western cities weakened the League's hold on the Scandinavian kingdoms, and Christian II, who had married Charles V's sister, conceived the idea of utilizing his Burgundian allies for the purpose of breaking the domination of the Baltic cities. The plan was ruined by Christian's vices, which gained him the hatred of all his subjects and enabled the Lübeckers, by timely assistance to Christian's uncle, Frederick, Duke of Holstein, to evict their enemy from the throne of Denmark and Norway. Similar aid was rendered to Gustavus Vasa, who in the same year, 1523, drove Christian out of Sweden, and thus the union of the three Scandinavian kingdoms, which had lasted since the Peace of Kalmar, 1397, was permanently broken up. Christian, however, was not content with his defeat, and with a view to securing the assistance of his Habsburg brothers-in-law and of Catholic Europe, he abjured his Lutheranism and represented his attempt to regain his thrones as a crusade against heresy. In 1531-32, he overran Norway, but Lübeck blockaded the coast, forced him to capitulate, and procured his lifelong imprisonment at Sonderburg. This outrage on royal majesty, coupled with the mercantile hostility between Lübeck and the Netherlands, precipitated naval war between the Dutch and Baltic cities. And the situation was complicated by the death of Frederick I in April 1533. Several claimants for his vacant throne appeared. Frederick left two sons, Christian III, a Lutheran, and John, who seems to have entertained some hopes of maintaining his pretensions by the help of the Catholic party. The old king, Christian II, was regarded as impossible, and the Habsburgs put forward as their candidate, Count Frederick of the Palatinate, afterwards the elector Palatinate Frederick II, who married old Christian's daughter. Such was the situation with which the Democrats of Lübeck who had obtained control of the council in February and elected Jürgen Wollenwaver burgomaster in March 1533, had to deal. The distrust with which the revolutionists of Lübeck were viewed by both Protestant and Catholic princes made Wollenwaver's course a difficult one. He started for Copenhagen to conclude an alliance between the two cities, but Copenhagen looked on him askance, and he then offered his friendship to the young Christian III with no better result. Lübeck, however, found an unexpected ally in Henry VIII, who was then trying every means to reduce the Habsburg power, 
and regarded with alarm the prospect of a Habsburg victory in Denmark. Marx Meyer, a military adventurer who had taken service under Lübeck, had been sent to sea in command of a fleet against the Dutch. Landing in England without a passport, he had been lodged in the Tower of London, but Henry saw in him a convenient instrument against the Habsburgs. He conferred on Meyer a knighthood and promised Lübeck assistance, while the Lübeckers undertook to tolerate no prince upon the Danish throne of whom the English king did not approve. But Henry's promises were not very serious, and the Lübeckers were wise in not putting too much trust in them. They were better advised in concluding a four years' truce with the Netherlands at the price of free trade through the Sound in order to concentrate their efforts upon establishing their control over Denmark. The element on which they relied was the democratic spirit in the Scandinavian kingdoms and particularly in the towns. Melchior Hoffman had preached at Stockholm, where Gustavus Vasa declared that the populace aimed at his assassination. At Malmo and Copenhagen, the burgomasters eventually adopted Woolen Weaver's views, and both peasants and artisans in Denmark were excited and discontented. The expulsion of the old King Christian had been in the main an aristocratic revolution, abetted by Lübeck in revenge for Christian's attacks on her mercantile monopoly and the rule of Frederick I had been marked by aristocratic infringements of the commercial privileges of the townsfolk and by oppression of the peasants. Both classes were ready to rise for their old Bauernkönig, and Lübeck, aware that Christian would be a puppet in her hands, determined to restore the sovereign whom ten years before she had deposed. The town took into its service Count Christopher of Oldenburg, a competent soldier, albeit a canon of Cologne, and stipulated in case of success for the cession of Gothland, Helsingborg, and Helsinger. In May 1534, Christian arrived at Lübeck, and having won a few trifling successes over Duke Christian, he put to sea with a powerful fleet and appeared off Copenhagen in June. Everywhere, almost popular insurrections broke out in favor of the old king or against the ruling nobility. This war was called the Grafenfede, and it was in the name of the peasant king that Christopher summoned the town and county proletariat to rise against their lords. Sealand, Copenhagen, Lolland, Longeland, and Falster once more recognized him as their sovereign. Revolts of the peasants in Funen and Jutland led to a similar recognition, while Oldendorp, whom Woolenweaver describes as the originator of the movement, roused some of the Swedish cities. The Lübeck revolutionists seemed to be carrying all before them. Democratic factions triumphed at Stralsund, Rostock, Riga, and Reval, and sent contributions in men or money to the common cause. In Lübeck itself, Woolenweaver strengthened his position by expelling the hostile minority from the council, and Bonus, the Lutheran superintendent, resigned his charge. Had the cities succeeded as they hoped, wrote a Pomeranian chronicler, not a prince or a noble would have been left. 
The revolution at Munster was now at its height, and the princes and nobles were aware of their peril. But the Württemberg War also was raging, and they were compelled to content themselves with denouncing the action of Lübeck, leaving to Duke Christian the task of effective resistance. He proved equal to the occasion. In September, he completely blockaded the mouth of the Treva and cut off Lübeck from communication with the sea. The city was compelled to restore all the territory it had taken from Holstein, but both parties were left free to carry on hostilities in Denmark. There the estates, threatened by internal revolts and external foes, had elected Duke Christian king, and in December he captured Alberg and pacified Jutland. He was helped by contingents from three princes connected with him by marriage, the Dukes of Prussia and Pomerania, and Gustavus of Sweden, whose throne had been offered by Lübeck to Albrecht of Mecklenburg. Near Assens in Funen on June 11, 1535, Christian's general, Johann Ronsau, defeated the Lübeck allies under Count Johann von Hoya, and almost simultaneously his fleet, commanded by the Danish Admiral Skrom, won a less decisive victory over the ships of Lübeck off Bornholm. Funen and Seeland submitted, and in August, Copenhagen and Malmö alone held out. These disasters were fatal to Woolenweaver's power in Lübeck. During his absence in Mecklenburg, the restoration of the Conservatives was effected in August. Woolenweaver eventually fell into the hands of the Archbishop of Bremen, was delivered to the Archbishop's brother, Duke Henry of Brunswick, and put to death in September 1537. With the ruin of his party, the prosecution of his war began to languish, and in 1536 Christian took possession of Copenhagen and made himself master of the two kingdoms of Denmark and Norway. He was crowned by the Lutheran apostle Bugenbogen, under whose auspices religion according to the straightest sect of Wittenberg was established in Denmark. Christian's triumph was no doubt largely due to national antipathy to the domineering interference of an alien state, but the national feeling was exploited by class prejudice, and the aristocracy in Denmark turned their victory to the same use as the German princes did theirs in the Peasants' War. In both cases, Lutheranism made common cause with the upper classes. The proclamation of the gospel and the enforcement of serfdom went hand in hand. But the landlord was the predominant partner, and even the children of preachers remained in the status of serfs. To Lübeck itself, it is possible that the success of Woolenweaver's grandiose ideas of mercantile empire might have been more fatal than their failure. According to Baltic nautical ballads, Lübeck long regretted its turbulent burgomaster, and his name is surrounded in popular legend with something of the halo of a von Artefeld. But his attempt to clothe the new democratic spirit in the worn-out garb of the city empire was doomed from the first to end in disaster. He could not have permanently averted the decay of the Hansa towns or prevented the absorption of most of them in the growing territorial states. Temporary success would only have prolonged the struggle without affecting the last result. 
Besides the local circumstances which would have rendered ineffectual the endeavor of Lübeck, under whatever form of municipal government it might have been made, to establish an imperial state, there was no element of stability in the revolutionary spirit of which that endeavor was the last manifestation. The future of Germany was bound up with the fortunes of the territorial principle and it is impossible to determine exactly in what degree the lutheran reformation owed its salvation to its own inherent vitality and in what to its alliance with the prevailing political organization together lutheranism and territorialism had crushed the revolutionary movement whether it took the form of agrarian socialism munster anabaptism or urban democracy from the conflict of creeds all but two had now been eliminated catholicism and lutheranism both were equally linked with the territorial principle and whichever prevailed the political texture of germany would still be the same the subsidence of the revolutionary spirit narrowed the field of contention and the question became merely one of fixing the limits of this or that territorial state and of locating the frontier between the two established forms of religion yet peace was not any nearer because the rivals had beaten a common foe the agreement of nuremberg in fifteen thirty two had guaranteed to the members of the schmalkaldic league immunity for their religion but it did not define religion or provide security for future protestants at the peace of caden in fifteen thirty four the first point was settled by Ferdinand's quashing all the processes in the Reichskammergericht against the Schmalkaldic allies. But the protection did not extend beyond the members of the League, and numerous other Protestant states were liable to practical ruin as the result of the Supreme Court's verdicts. This was a particularly dangerous cause of friction because catholic princes had other than religious motives for executing the judgments of the court against their protestant neighbors as executors of the court's decrees they could legally seize the lands of recalcitrant cities or lords and under the guise of religion extend their territorial power thus duke eric of brunswick Kallenberg was anxious to execute sentence on his chief town hanover where a revolutionary movement had taken place the duke of bavaria cast longing eyes on augsburg and the specific object of the catholic league of hall fifteen thirty three was to secure the execution of verdicts against all cities and princes who were not among the schmalkaldic confederates the catholics undoubtedly had the law on their side but necessity drove their opponents to break it they could hardly stand by while their fellow countrymen were punished for holding faith they held themselves had they done so they would only have prepared the way for their own destruction the obvious method of protecting their co-religionists was to admit them to the schmalkaldic league but this was an infraction of the terms of the nuremberg peace which would endanger their own security and they would not have ventured on the step unless circumstances had tied the hands of the Austrian government. Throughout the greater part of 1535, Charles V was engaged in the conquest of Tunis, 
and he was hoping to follow up his success in this direction with an attack on the Turks, who were embroiled in a war with Persia when his plans were disconcerted by the hostile attitude of France. Francesco Sforza, Duke of Milan, died in 1535 without issue. And Francis I, fearing with good reason that Charles would seize the duchy himself, revived his claims to Milan, Genoa, and Asti. In the spring of 1536, he overran Savoy, which had become the emperor's ally, entered into negotiations with the Turks and with Henry VIII for a joint action against the Habsburgs, and approached the Lutheran princes with a similar object. The Lutherans were reluctant to side with the emperor's enemies, but they had no hesitation in putting a high price on their friendship and in turning Charles' necessities to account by demanding security for the threatened members of their church. In December 1535, at a diet of the Schmalkaldic League, they undertook to admit all who would subscribe to the Confession of Augsburg, and Württemberg, Pomerania, Anhalt, and the cities of Augsburg, Frankfurt, Hanover, and Kempton became thus entitled to its protection. They renewed their repudiation of the Reichskammergericht as a partisan body and declared that conscience would not allow them to respect its verdicts. They refused, in fact, to yield to the national and imperial authorities that obedience in religious matters which they rigorously exacted from the subjects of their own territorial jurisdiction. And at the moment when they were pleading conscience as a justification of their own conduct, they declined to admit its validity when urged by their Catholic brethren. The Lutherans had not remained untainted by the pride of power and the arrogance of success. In Ferdinand's own dominions at this time, Faber declared that but for him and the king all Vienna would have turned Lutheran, and that it needed but a sign to arm all Germany against the Roman Church. Ferdinand himself was urging such concessions as the marriage of the clergy and communion under both kinds and complained to the papal nuncio that he could not find a confessor who was not a fornicator, a drunkard, or an ignoramus. In England, Lutheranism had reached its highest watermark in Henry's reign. Melanchthon had dedicated an edition of his Loci Communis to the Tudor king and was willing to undertake a voyage to England to reform the English church. Francis I had invited Melanchthon and Bucer to France to discuss the religious situation. The new pope, Paul III, who had succeeded Clement VII in 1534, began his pontificate by creating a number of reforming cardinals and sent Virgerio to Germany to investigate the possibilities of a concordat with the heretics and to ascertain the terms upon which they would support a general council. In all the Scandinavian kingdoms, the triumph of the new faith was complete, and the Protestants seemed to be the winning cause in Europe. Now, when Charles was threatened with a joint attack by Turks and French, it was no time to throw the Lutheran princes into the enemy's arms. For the moment, temporal security was a more urgent need than the maintenance of the Catholic Church. 
and the suspension of all the ecclesiastical cases in the Reichskammergericht was the price which Ferdinand paid for the Lutheran rejection of alliance with Henry VIII and Francis I. One of Ferdinand's motives was fear lest Bavaria should, by executing the judicial sentence against Augsburg, acquire predominant influence in that important city, and he was by no means averse from the plan, proposed by the elector John Frederick of Saxony, of persuading Zwingli and Augsburg to adopt the Lutheran Confession, and of then admitting it to the Schmalkaldic League. Augsburg was thus saved from what Ferdinand regarded as a more pernicious form of heresy than Lutheranism, and also from the clutches of the rival house of Wittelsbach. The way for this conversion was prepared by the Wittenberg Concord of 1536. The hostility between the Zwinglian and Lutheran sects had to some extent subsided since Zwingli's death. Melanchthon had modified his attitude towards predestination and had been much impressed by Ecolampadius' treatise on the use of the Eucharist during the first three centuries. Luther even brought himself to entertain a friendly feeling for Zwingli's successor, Bullinger, after various preliminary negotiations in which Bucer was as usual the leading spirit a conference between Luther and representatives of the modified Zwinglianism, which prevailed in the cities of Upper Germany, was held in Luther's house at Wittenberg in May 1536. The two parties agreed on a form of words which covered their differences about the real presence in the Eucharist. They were not so successful with regard to the other disputed point, the reception of the body of Christ by unworthy communicants, but they agreed to differ. Luther expressed himself willing to bury the past and roll the stone upon it, and extended to Bucer and the upper German cities that brotherly love which he had refused to Zwingli at Marburg in 1529. End of section 25